0: Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Nancy Whiteman, CEO of Juana Brands, North America's number one producer of top selling cannabis infused products. Welcome to the show, Nancy.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Heralded as the Queen of Legal Weed by Inc. and the Martha Stewart of Edibles by Entrepreneur, Nancy leads the company's strategic vision and has been instrumental in Wana Brand's growth into new and emerging markets. She also directs the development of partnerships and licensing agreements domestically and internationally. Nancy founded Wana Wellness Hemp Herbal Supplements, leveraging her expertise in cannabinoid innovation and product development. Nancy serves on the Marijuana Business Daily Advisory Board and the Benzinga Cannabis Advisory Board. She was recognized as one of Green Entrepreneur's 35 Most Influential Women in Cannabis and named MJ Biz Daily's first ever Industry Impact Award winner. She was one of six women included in High Times 100 and was listed as number three in Cannabis Business Executive's 2019 Power Women in Cannabis. Nancy, welcome. It is such an honor to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: I was first introduced to Wana Brands at a conference in 2019. A friend of mine handed me an edible and said, I should talk to you. She said, (laughs) Nancy has done more for women than anyone I know in the industry. She is the real deal. So I basically had you on my interview wish list for over a year and a year and a half now. And so it is just a complete thrill, fangirl excitement to finally get to talk to you.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to have to meet this wonderful person who said that at some point.
0: <laughs> I will. I would love to introduce you. She is a huge fan, huge fan. And I also was turned on to Juan Edibles at the time, which I am now also a huge fan of. But you are an inspiration for thousands of women in cannabis who are really just getting started in their business. And, you know, we really realize in today's world that representation matters. And so to see the biggest edible brand in the U.S. founded and led by a woman is absolutely extraordinary. How did you get there in 10 years? And what were some of the obstacles you faced as a woman that were an extra burden on your ascent?
1: Wow. Okay. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. Um, let, me, let me start with with, uh, with our origin story. I actually uh, founded Juana Brands with, with a partner. It was sort of one of those uh, interesting situations. We were really not planning on uh, launching uh, an edibles company or a cannabis company at all actually what happened was we had a neighbor who was, was over. He was, his daughter was friends with, with my older daughter and he had been in commercial real estate. And I asked him what he was doing because 2010 was a tough time for commercial real estate. And he mentioned that he had started a new company and we started to talk about it. It was an infused soda pop company, long story short, We ended up going into uh, what turned out to be a very brief partnership with him. And so it was an interesting thing because I actually got into the industry without knowing much about the medicinal uses of cannabis. Now, I had been, you know, personally a big fan of cannabis for many, many, many years. I knew quite a bit about it from a a recreational perspective, but I didn't know much about it from a medicinal uh, perspective. And that's not to say that I didn't believe it. I just didn't personally know a lot about it. So I'm always joking when people ask me, how did you do this? How did you get into it? I always joke that I need a better backstory because so many people who got into the industry did it for very, very noble reasons. and, And I really did not. Now, the truth is what ended up happening was that once we started the company and got it underway, um, what I found was that I was getting this incredible feedback from our customers about how much our products were were helping them. Uh, whether it was getting them through chemo or helping them uh, with uh, getting off of opiates, et cetera, all of those things ended up really having an enormous impact on me. And I was it was like a light bulb went off. Like, oh my gosh. This is A, real, and B, we could have this incredible impact on the world. And from there, I was sort of all in uh, and became very passionate about the plant and the uses of the plant, really to make the world a better place and to help people with a lot of medical and health and wellness challenges that they were facing using plant-based medicine. So that was incredibly exciting and meaningful to me. That was sort of how how we got started. Now, how we grew the company in 10 years' time is kind of uh, another story. So we are based in Colorado, and Colorado at that point in time really was kind of the Wild West. You know, there were not a lot of regulations. Uh, you didn't have to have your products third-party tested. You didn't have to have child uh, resistant packaging. You didn't have to have, uh, there were nothing much in the way of labeling requirements. Um, didn't have to test things for, for pesticides or contaminants. But we actually uh, got, I think, our start and our our reputation for quality and consistency because even right from the start, we tested every single batch of product that we made with a third-party lab. I always really was uncomfortable with the idea that somebody could be using one of our products and not know exactly what they were taking uh, or what the effect might be. So that was kind of the beginning. Then what ended up happening is that we, like many companies in the early days, we were essentially uh, just trying a whole bunch of stuff. At that point in time, there really were no analytics uh, companies in the market that you could turn to and say, "Hmm, I wonder what products are doing well and what's trending and and all the stuff that we now have access to. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that back then. So what we ended up doing was just trying a whole bunch of different stuff and seeing what the market liked. And relatively early on in the process, we began noticing uh, that gummies were starting to take off. There was a company in Colorado uh, but they were using a very different model than we were. They, uh, they were basically buying products off the shelf, you know, the same gummy bears and gummy worms, et cetera. And they were spraying them with hash oil. Oh. And our feeling was is that we could do better than that. We could make them from scratch and we could uh, infuse them during the cooking process so that it wouldn't have a hashy taste as you were biting into it. And um, it was completely homogeneous. So you could cut it in quarters and every quarter was going to be exactly the same, which is is kind of hard to achieve when Mm -hmm. you're spraying something on top. So we kind of uh, really got going with gummies early and we put a lot of time and energy into coming up with a fantastic formulation. Uh, We worked very hard on the initial recipe and then we hired food chemists and outside consultants to help us refine it and scale it. Um, you know, one of the stories that, that I like to tell is that the food consultant who we used uh, asked me, you know, uh, what kind of pectin we were using. And I said, well, I don't know. You know, I had some dumb answer, like, you know, whatever we can buy. And he said to me, uh, he said, you know, I've got 30 different kinds of pectin on my shelf and each of them respond differently. And so we spent just an enormous amount of time really refining the recipe uh, so that it would have the most uh, pleasing texture. And we spent a lot of time on our our taste formulations. And that was the beginning of, I think, our reputation as a gummy manufacturer. Now, at that point in time, we had no idea that gummies were going to turn out to be the category that they've turned out to be. Um, I don't know how how closely you you follow the the, um, edibles industry, but one of the analytics companies recently came out with a report that gummies were 84% of the candy category. And candy is by far the largest category within edibles. So it's really the dominant platform. But what we found was that gummies became more than just a uh, platform uh, for us, like one of many. We really felt that it had a lot of flexibility. It allowed us to do a lot of different things. So we began experimenting with class-specific gummies. We were early coming out with Intica, Sativa hybrid gummies. We were very early coming out with um, different THC and CBD ratios. Um, And then most recently, we really pioneered a fast onset technology that's really unlike any other uh, edible that I'm aware of on the marketplace that allows uh, somebody to to take one of our our quick onset gummies and uh, feel the onset within about five to 15 minutes, depending on your metabolism and what you've eaten, et cetera. Um, And the other thing that's cool about it is that rather than uh, metabolizing through the liver the way typical edibles work, it goes immediately into the bloodstream. And the reason that's important is that when a product metabolizes through the liver, the uh, THC turns into a different molecular structure called 11-hydroxy. And the 11-hydroxy is actually what gives uh, edibles sort of that characteristic, very heavy body feeling. Um, Some people prefer a lighter, shorter more cerebral experience, more like smoking, more like an inhalation high. And that's what you get with our quick onset uh, products. And so they uh, they stay in what's called a Delta 9 format of THC, which is similar to what you get from um, smoking or inhalation. So those were some of the innovations we made in the product form itself. And then I would say the second big thing that we did is that Very early, we began experimenting with uh, licensing models and bringing our products to other states through licensing agreements with partners. We currently operate in 12 markets. We're in 11 states plus Canada. Uh, We're launching in Massachusetts second quarter this year, which will be our 13th market. And we're in discussions in a variety of other uh, markets as well. So that was a very long answer to a simple question, but that's kind of how we got started and, and how we've scaled over the last 10 years.
0: And it, so it sounds like you made a lot of really innovative choices in your company trajectory. Were there things that you left on the table that you decided, you know, this is really innovative and amazing, but it's not for us, that, that, it, that it indicates that there's still a lot of opportunity for innovation in this vertical?
1: yes, so let me let me try to tackle that question a couple of different ways. First of all, there's there was a lot of stuff that that we decided to leave on the table. Um, not it wasn't innovation driven. Mostly, it was product form driven. Yeah. Um, so, for example, we decided that um, baked goods, for example, were not for us. They were too fragile. They went stale if you didn't put a lot of preservatives in them. So it just wasn't a category that we wanted to pursue. Bottling, anything that was bottled, we decided we didn't want to do just because of the the expense and complexity of getting uh, a heavy product like that out into the marketplace. So, yes, there was lots of things that we made very conscious decisions about not to pursue. On the innovation side, though, probably more to your point, I think we're really still very, very early stages in terms of the power of this plant and what we're going to be able to do from a formulation perspective. And that's really one of Juana's big areas of focus is innovation and R&D. And we have all kinds of stuff in the pipeline, so much so that we're, we're having to sort of slow it down so that we can sequence um, our market releases uh, for, for what the market is actually ready
0: for. You had mentioned that the p- patient success was really what has driven you through this whole process and the reward that you get from realizing you're making a positive impact in people's lives. How do you balance your compassion for the patients who are so deeply impacted by your products and the cold, hard reality of business? I mean, where do you draw the line for your values and where do you bend on that business side?
1: Values always come first for us. And and I'm I'm everybody says that <laughs> I think and uh, and I'm not doubting them, but but for us that really is sort of our north star and our guiding light, and that comes through in a whole different way, a whole bunch of different ways, um, everything from how we prioritize uh, product development priorities to who we select as partners. So that's really important. Fortunately, I have not experienced that that drives any trade-offs uh, in terms of, of um, putting patients first and putting customers first. Um, it, it, actually, just the opposite. I think it leads us uh, in, in very positive ways. Yes, there, there are cold, hard business realities, but um, I, I don't think they have to come at the expense of product quality, or at least we've chosen never to have them come at the expense of product quality.
0: And what is your company culture when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Because I imagine at a company that is really values-driven, this is also very important to you. And how has this paid off for you when it comes to the bottom line?
1: Yeah, um, and that's something that we're constantly working on. And I think this last year, with um, you know the murder of George Floyd, certainly he was not the first, but I think it was really a tipping point, and it really. Catalyzed us, if you will, to step back and really take a hard look at our company and whether we were doing enough in terms of creating an environment that fostered diversity and inclusion. And uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that that we're doing. Um, obviously, it, we're a women-led company, um, so we've got some some built-in diversity, if you will, compared to the industry. But what I really think is that we have consciously decided to make it much more of a priority. And so when we are, you know, looking to hire, for example, uh, whereas before certainly we were always, you know, trying to get a diverse candidate pool, uh, now we will actually halt and say if we haven't found a, a candidate you know, do we want to step back and try again? Do we want to go out again, see if we can get a more diverse pool? We're talking to a variety of people about getting involved in mentorship programs and accelerators. Um, We developed a website that is called Cannabis for Justice. It's not a WANA branded website, deliberately by design. But what it really grew out of is what, what I was just talking about is our own internal efforts, because what I really found as we started really digging into this issue in a more serious way is that there was almost an overwhelming amount of resources out there. And so my feeling about it was rather than make everybody sort of reinvent the wheel, why don't we come up with a mechanism? In this case, it was a website to capture all of these resources so that other people in the cannabis industry would have a place to go um, where they could get a lot of resources about various things that they could do within their own companies to um, foster diversity and inclusion. Um, we also just completed anti-racism training for our entire team. And that's really just really step one. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing to focus on that, do a lot more um, to bring our own employees into that mindset, that this is all a responsibility that we bear together. And particularly in cannabis, we bear it together. Because cannabis, of course, as you know, has, you know, was the center point of the quote unquote war on drugs, which very overtly and consciously targeted people of color mm-hmm. who've ended up paying the huge price that now white entrepreneurs like myself are benefiting from. So we really have a moral obligation to do everything that we can to level the playing field for everybody who wants to participate in the industry.
0: It hasn't been a full year yet since the George Floyd death happened. And so you've been implementing these for about nine months or so. Has it had an impact on your company culture?
1: Um, I think so. And and that's actually, you know, I, it's funny. I, I just happen to... Um, author a a little column in um, Green Entrepreneur recently. And one of the things that I was talking about in that column was the fact that what what I really encourage us as a culture to focus on is progress, not perfection. And I say that because I think that um, we, like many companies, we're not doing enough. And can do a lot more and will do a lot more. But you have to accept the fact that you are where you are and to not let discomfort or embarrassment about the fact that you're not perfect um, get in the way of talking about it. And they are uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. And starting to put uh, pieces in place. And so I have been very vocal in the company about that. Obviously, you know, when we did the anti-racism training, it was all done via Zoom because except for our production teams, uh, many of us are are primarily working remotely at this point. But really, that really was sort of my lead-in to that training was this is the first of many initiatives that, Uh, We're going to be talking about focusing on, and yes, I want it to change the company culture because it's not just a question of bringing in diverse um, candidates and and having a more diverse employee pool. It also is about having a culture that is truly inclusive and is welcoming and, and wants this diversity so that when you successfully recruit, quality candidates, they have an environment that they feel comfortable and supported in.
0: I appreciate your leadership on this. It, it means a lot coming from the number one edible brand in North America. So thank you very much for that. Um, it leads me into my next question. You have a really unique vantage point in the industry. You've had over a decade at Juana, you were in the first legal state. You've seen a lot come and go. What do you see are the real opportunities for women in cannabis and where do we still have a lot of work to do to create an equitable industry for women and and people of color?
1: Great question. You know, and and I do have an interesting vantage point having been in the industry for over a decade. It is interesting because when I first got involved in the industry and when we first started Juana, there in fact were a lot of female entrepreneurs. But I have to put it in the context of Colorado is an unlimited license state. And by that, I mean, there's no state mandated caps on the number of licenses. There's some practical constraints because, you know, you have to find a place to operate and and all the rest of that. But... um, What ended up happening, because it was an unlimited license date, is that the barrier to entry was relatively low. And I benefited from this myself, because we actually have completely bootstrapped Juana. We have no investors.
0: That is amazing. Ever, ever, whatever you could get to where you were completely bootstrapped, that is really impressive.
1: Thank you so much. So we've grown completely organically. But what has ended up happening as the industry has matured, and as the state models have changed, so it has shifted from this unlimited license uh, approach, Uh, Colorado has it, California has it, Oregon has it, Oklahoma has it. And what you see much more of now is more what I would say you see more frequently on the East Coast, which is a very limited license scenario where the state will say, we are capping the number of licenses at 20 or 15 or whatever it is that they come up with. And the reason I'm raising this is because I believe it has had a material impact on the participation of women and people of color in the industry. Because what this inadvertently did, and I don't say this thinking that it was the intention of the states to do this. They were focused, I think, on how they keep control of the industry. But what it ended up doing is it ended up um, favoring people who have historically had the best access to capital, which tend to be white men.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. So
1: this is exactly sort of the structural uh, issues. And of course, now that we're looking at, you know, Senator Schumer and the whole effort to uh, sort of revitalize the federal legislation around cannabis, they are attempting to address that through building in social equity requirements as part of the bill. So there's, uh, there really are structural reasons why this has happened, but it has been a very significant change from when I first started in the industry.
0: What are you most excited about and most concerned about federal legalization?
1: Well, it, you know, there's there's a couple on the excitement, of course, There's <laughs> I could talk about a lot of different things first of all, the banking aspect of it. Um, Currently, I'm sure most of your listeners probably know this, but as a federally illegal industry, it makes uh, sort of normal banking very challenging. Mm. Uh, Most mainstream banks are not able to work with cannabis companies because of their own charters. Um, There are some credit unions and, and Some local uh, institutions that have been able to take it on. But that has been a huge limiting factor. First of all, it's not safe because there's a lot of cash uh, in this industry. You don't want cash, right? In any industry, but certainly not in this one, right? And it also is very, very limiting in terms of financing options and uh, capital raises and that sort of thing. So it has many, many implications for the industry. And there's also a tax component that's very important. There's a piece of tax uh, code called uh, 280E, which basically says that you cannot deduct any expenses incurred with selling a federally illegal product, mm-hmm. which means that dispensaries, for example, who's purpose is to sell federally illegal products. Um, most of them have enormous amounts of um, expenses that they can't deduct. So that is a dampening of the whole industry in terms of its uh, potential to reach profitability and to be on an equal playing field with other industries. The other thing, of course, is in terms of my excitement, is the ability to ship across state lines. So in our current environment, what what ends up happening is that every time you launch in a new market, you're essentially starting a whole new business because in a state-by-state environment, the one that we're in now, um, every piece of the component has to be done within the state. uh, The product must be grown in the state, it must be processed in the state, and it must be dispensed or sold within the state. So you essentially have to start over every time. And so what that means is that You can't really, as a manufacturer, speaking for myself right now, you really can't get the economies of scale that a quote unquote normal or more typical manufacturing uh, uh, entity would enjoy. So rather than investing in plant level equipment once, being able to produce our products and ship them across the country, we end up having to have uh, work with partners and, and each of them has small facilities it doesn't make sense to, to make uh, major capital investments of plant level equipment because you would be running it for you know six minutes a day, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can't cost justify it. So there's a lot of things that I'm very uh, optimistic and excited about with federal legalization. Uh, in terms of the what I'm less excited about, uh, or con- I, I would say have some question marks or concerns about. It will be obviously, you know, what will the impact be uh, in terms of federal oversight? Now, we already uh, have moved to uh, close to a GMP or good manufacturing practices, you know, in our own facility. But, you know, we can expect the FDA to be involved and uh, and in many ways appropriately so. But there'll be new levels of uh, complexity in terms of compliance that don't exist now. Obviously, it's also going to bring, you know, a host of new competitors into the marketplace. It's also going to have very significant implications for supply chain. You know, right now, a lot of cannabis is grown in very expensive indoor facilities, when uh, sort of common sense would, would tell you that, You know, if there were no uh, impediments to this, you would want to grow outdoors, uh, much like tobacco is grown, right, in warm environments. There's many, many, many implications for uh, legalization, and it remains to be seen what the bill is going to look like and, and how the industry will both benefit and have to adjust to that new environment.
0: What are you most excited about for WANA in 2021?
1: Well... I guess the two big bucket categories for me would be ongoing our ongoing investment and introduction of new products in uh, kind of the innovation category. We have a lot of interesting sort of cutting edge products in the pipeline. So I'm very excited for that. And then, you know, our continued expansion. We had this amazing uh, 2020 Where which was a very, very challenging year for the world. Um, Cannabis made out pretty well, but in general, it was very challenging for the world. But one of the things that happened for us was that we had to learn how to onboard new partners remotely. We've always had a very intensive onboarding process that had our team um, going to markets multiple times, had our partners coming to our facility to train in our facility. What we had to learn how to do was to launch all of this stuff remotely. We ended up launching five new markets during the pandemic, including Canada, where we couldn't even set foot in Canada because the borders were literally closed. We launched at huge levels with our partner in Canada. I'm very proud to say we are the number one edibles company in Canada. And we learned how to do things uh, in a much more sophisticated way remotely. Um, So that has opened up a host of opportunities for us now that we know that we can do that. So I'm really excited about our continued geographic expansion. Those are probably two of the highlights that I would point to.
0: That's fantastic. Congratulations. What advice do you have? Just one piece of advice, top line advice for women listening that are starting their cannabis brands.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I would I'm going to back up from your question for a second and say I would say don't limit yourself to just thinking about brands. You know that this industry is so vast and there's so many different ways to participate in it Um, that, you know, there's technology plays and all kinds of ancillary businesses that are, uh, you know, really popping up to support the industry that I think women are very well positioned to play in. But the the advice that I would give women if they do want to do brands is, is not dissimilar to the advice that I would give anybody. Um, And then with a couple of specifics for women, I guess I would say the overall advice that I give anybody is to really start with having a real vision. What is it that you're actually really trying to do Uh, there's a lot of gummies out there already. There's a lot of chocolate out there already. What are you going to do not to be just another me too product, right? Is, are you going to have a innovation advantage? Are you going to have a cost advantage? Are you going to have some kind of marketing or distribution advantage? What is it that really gets you excited and makes you think that, that you're bringing something new and needed to the industry? Because I will tell you, it is very hard to get on the shelves, Uh, It's very, very competitive. But beyond that, as a woman, I think the issue for women now does really have to do with access to capital and how you get going. And so what I would say is as much networking as you can do, and not just with other women, uh, you know, connecting with other women is a wonderful thing, but you're cutting out half the population and a vast a majority of the capital, if you're only networking with women. So you you have to get get yourself comfortable and having those conversations in meeting a lot of people, not taking it personally when, when you don't get the response that you want. But relationships, uh, I, I think relationships are critical in every industry. But this one, from my experience, even more so, you have to build those relationships with people.
0: That is great advice. I couldn't agree more. This industry is so really driven, more than any I've ever been a part of.
1: Me too. Me too.
0: Where can women find out more about WANA or follow you? And will you please give us the uh, URL for your resources project that you had mentioned earlier as well?
1: Yes. So let me start with that. Uh, our website is called Cannabis for Justice, Strong together.com. And that is, that's the place you can go. And we're going to be adding a lot to that, actually. We've got a wonderful new CSR director starting in the next couple of weeks, and she's going to be tackling, really beefing up those resources. Uh, in terms of the best way to follow WANA, if you go to our website, which is www.wanabrands.com, you can sign up for our newsletter, and you will get regular updates on WANA. Um, I would say, follow us on LinkedIn. You know, obviously follow us on Instagram and facebook and and Twitter as well. Um, but uh, linkedin is is a lot of where you will see the uh, the links to more of the full length articles, et cetera. Um, and and in terms of of me, feel free to send me a LinkedIn request, and i'm 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 happy to connect with people and that way, you know, whatever. If you have any interest in what I'm saying on LinkedIn, you'll be able to see that as well.
0: Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for your time and for sharing your journey with us today. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our website, com, and find your group, Supply Chain, CBD and Hemp, and the recently launched Women of Color. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a supporting member or supporting business for benefits and access across the network. And join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis.